0: 2 Samuel chapter 12 is where we're starting. Um, This is something that I read a couple of weeks ago, probably in my reading plan. I hadn't planned to include this in the current series. Uh, The books that I'm reading on the, the disciplines of the Holy Spirit don't commonly mention this. Uh, maybe a little bit, but not given a sort of section on its own, but it's something that I felt God really spoke to me about and that I wanted to, to elaborate on a wee bit. Remember that the purpose of the series is that our hearts would be transformed, that these disciplines are the ways in which we hoist up the sails and allow the wind of the Spirit to come and blow and to propel us forwards in our life in Christ Um, And I've said it every week, and I'll say it every week as we go on, because I want you to remember it, that we should not get fixated on trying to change our outward behavior. What Jesus wants is to transform our hearts, and that our outward behavior would then flow out of that, rather than us getting stuck in some sort of legalistic mindset of trying to do everything right and trying to stop doing wrong things. He wants to transform our hearts that everything we do flows from that place. We've looked at meditation on the word of God. We've looked at prayer. We've looked at worship. Last week, Jude uh, led us in in thinking about celebration and joy. Uh, We've a few more to do after this. But let me read from 2 Samuel 12 just to give us a, somewhere to, to, to bounce off from. Um, 2 Samuel 12 is quite a famous story. Just to give you the background of it before I read a few verses. Um, prior to this, David has taken another man's wife. That is not a good idea. David already had wives, several of them. That in itself, not a good idea either. But he had everything that he could possibly have wanted. He had wealth, he had his, his wives, he, had, he just had everything. And yet he went and took the wife of another man. And in chapter 12 of Second Samuel, a prophet called Nathan comes to David, and this is what Nathan says to him. There were two men in a certain town, one rich and the other poor. The rich man had a very large number of sheep and cattle, but the poor man had nothing except one little ewe lamb he had bought. He raised it, and it grew up with him and his children. It shared his food, drank from his cup, and even slept in his arms. It was like a daughter to him. Now a traveler came to the rich man, but the rich man refrained from taking one of his own sheep or cattle to prepare a meal for the traveler who had come to him. Instead, he took the ewe lamb that belonged to the poor man and prepared it for the one who had come to him. David burned with anger against the man and said to Nathan, As surely as the Lord lives, the man who did this deserves to die. He must pay for that lamb four times over because he did such a thing and had no pity. So David hears this story. You and I reading it, hopefully as soon as we read it, we know what the story is about. The story has been made up by Nathan to describe one wealthy man who had everything he could have wanted, a poor man who only had one lamb, and yet the wealthy man went and took the lamb from the poor man. And everyone reading it is thinking, that's you, David. You're the guy. You're the one who is in the story. David doesn't get it. And in verse 5, he's really angry. And in verse 7, Nathan has to say to him, You are the man. Now, in in modern speech, you're the man is is a nice thing to say to somebody. makes them feel good. It's an affirmation. But in this case, it's not good. What Nathan is saying to David is, You are the greedy, rich man who took the little lamb from the poor man in order to have it for yourself. And as I read that a couple of weeks ago, the thing that struck me that hadn't struck me before in that passage was, how was David so unaware of what was going on in his own heart? He had taken another man's wife, the prophet comes and tells him this story, and David doesn't get it. He has to be explicitly told that it's his heart that's being exposed. The question is, how can a man fail to know his own heart? And if that's not sort of enough, two chapters later in 2 Samuel 14, David falls for it again. One of his sons has killed his half-brother. And the son Absalom that killed his half-brother has fled to hide. And this woman then comes to David in chapter 14, and she makes up a story about having two sons, one of whom kills the other one, and then goes into hiding and is not free to return. And David again is angered by what he hears, and again has to be told, David, this is about you. Why are you not bringing back your exiled son? So twice in the space of a few chapters, David's just woefully unaware of what's going on inside his own heart. And what that got me thinking about was the need for a a discipline of the spirit called self-knowledge or self-awareness. The need to actually know ourselves and know our own hearts. We are living in an age that is obsessed with knowledge. There is a film that I used to watch when I was a kid, uh, and if you're of a similar generation, you might remember it. It's called Short Circuit. It's about a robot called Johnny Number 5 or Number Johnny 5 or something like that. And the robot is obsessed with acquiring knowledge. And he keeps on picking up books, and he can read a whole book in a few seconds, and then he keeps on saying, more input, more input, because he's just obsessed with acquiring knowledge. And in the age that we live in, we are like the robot. We love knowledge. We literally, at our fingertips, have got a, a, a mountain of knowledge on the internet that we could not process in in multiple lifetimes. Just the sheer volume of knowledge, and we love it. And we love to read things, and we love to go and find out about stuff, even though we don't remember it. We just have this yearning and this hunger to know things, and to know what's going on, to be constantly updated. But in this world that is so full of knowledge there is a distinct lack of self-knowledge. In fact, a guy called Rod Wilson from Regent College in Vancouver says, some of the people who know a lot don't know a lot about themselves. We can have knowledge on a vast number of things, but like David, we can be woefully ignorant of our own hearts. And we're really good at sometimes looking at other people's lives and spotting things in their lives that we feel God needs to change. But Jesus warned us against that. He said, you know, do, do not be pointing out the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye until you first of all deal with the log that's in your own eye. We're great at not only general knowledge, but we're great at an assumed knowledge of being able to read other people's hearts. Jesus says, you be careful because all the while that you're trying to read their heart, there's maybe something massive in you that you are not dealing with. So if the goal of the spiritual journey, if the goal of the Christian life is to be transformed, The point of this message, which is now going to be split over over two weeks, the point of this is that God cannot transform us if we will not acknowledge the things in us that need to be transformed. If we pretend that everything is fine and we have arrived and nothing needs to be transformed, then we are limiting God's power from being able to work in our hearts and in our lives. Jesus... In Matthew, sorry, in Mark chapter 10, asks a really strange question. There's a blind guy called Bartimaeus at the end of Mark chapter 10. And he is sitting at the side of the road and he hears a crowd and a commotion and realizes that Jesus must be passing by. So he starts to shout and yell and try to get Jesus' attention. And the people say to him to be quiet and leave Jesus alone. But he shouts all the louder. And as Jesus then speaks to the man that Bartimaeus is brought to him, Jesus asks him a question that when you first read it sounds really stupid. Jesus says to the guy, what do you want me to do for you? And surely it's patently obvious. The guy's blind. He's been blind and he's been begging for his whole life. And the crowd are watching and the man is standing in front of Jesus and Jesus says to him, what do you want me to do? And as I've thought about that, I think there's a real, the the man's response is that I want to see. I want to regain my sight. And I think there's a real power in acknowledging before God and before others, which will probably feed into a future message on on confession and repentance. There's a real power in declaring what it is that we need Jesus to do for us. The guy could not deny the fact that he was blind. It would have been stupid for him to pretend that there was nothing wrong. But Jesus draws it out of him. Causes him to acknowledge it. What do you want me to do for you? Are you willing to name? Are you willing to acknowledge that thing in you that needs transformed? And this guy was, and it was his blindness. So one of the, I guess, the purpose of this. There, there are lots of important messages in Christianity about our identity. That's not quite where we're going today, vitally important. But the important thing is, do you know your own heart? Because we're on a journey and on a series of sermons here trying to encourage people to engage in disciplines that allow God's Spirit to transform them. And in order for Him to transform my heart, I've got to be honest about what's in it. I need to know myself. So today I want to just run through a few Um, cautions here and a few misunderstandings to try to protect us from falling into those. And then next week, we will look more at how can we know ourselves biblically, safely in in God's presence. Go to 1 Corinthians, please, chapter 11, Um, just to to point out uh, what I think is a common wrong attitude that a lot of Christians hold regarding the Lord's Supper because it's got this phrase in it about examining yourself. It's 1 Corinthians 11. It is read in churches all over the world every week. Verse 28 says, a man, and a woman, a man ought to examine himself before he eats of the bread and drinks of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without recognizing the body of the Lord eats and drinks judgment on himself. So as we come to the Lord's table, there is this command, this invitation and command, examine yourself. And what a lot of people, I think, misinterpret that to mean is, They reflect back on the previous week, that's good to do, or on the previous day. They examine their own hearts and things that have happened, and then they make the decision, I'm not going to take communion this week because such and such a thing happened on Thursday. That is not, I believe, what Paul means. And if that's something that you have done in the past or you're in the habit of doing, I would encourage you to take a bit of time later and reflect what does that say about the grace of God? If you come to the Lord's table, have a think for a few moments and then say no. What does that say about the cross of Christ? What does that say about your theology of whether you come before God due to grace on his part or due to good works on your part? So I don't believe that Paul is writing here saying, examine yourself and then refuse to take part in the Lord's Supper. What he's saying is, examine yourself before you take part. And the examination in verse 29, he says that anyone who eats and drinks without recognizing the body of the Lord eats and drinks damnation upon himself or judgment upon himself. He's not talking about the bread, He's talking about the body of Christ, the church. And whenever we're invited in that context at the table to examine ourselves, I believe it is primarily not about things that we've necessarily done in the past week, but it's about the attitudes that we have towards our brothers and sisters who are at the table with us. Examine our hearts in terms of how we love them and relate to them rather than nitpicking over little mistakes that we have made. So we need to be careful that we don't engage in self-examination that leads to condemnation. Anyone who comes to the Lord's table and examines themselves and then decides I'm not fit to receive what Jesus did for me, you are starting to wade into the territory of self-condemnation. God does not condemn people who are in Christ. So we need to be careful here that our self-knowledge, our self-awareness is not self-examination that leads to us feeling rotten about who we are and very negative about ourselves. It's examination of ourselves before we once again receive the grace of what Jesus has done for us. There is a danger of of carrying this self-examination out alone. Now, when I say alone, I mean out of fellowship with God and sometimes as well out of fellowship with others. We, we can very easily, if, if God is not in this, and we'll talk more about that next week, how God is part of this. If we try to examine our own hearts without him, without his presence, without his word, without allowing his spirit to speak to us, then there are two extremes that we will probably default to. One extreme is that we will justify what we find. I'm great at this. We will find things in our hearts that we know are not good, but we will justify them. The defense mechanisms will start to kick in and it will be like, yes, I see that in my heart, but that's there because of this, this, and this. And we justify it and don't deal with it. And the other extreme that we can go to is that we basically beat ourselves up mercilessly about what we find because we're doing this without the presence of God. We're trying to know our hearts without him and his word and his spirit. And rather than again receiving grace and the power to change, we end up just beating ourselves blind. These two ends of the spectrum, overlooking and justifying things or mercilessly beating ourselves up about things. Another thing just to to understand about this is self-knowledge is not just about the stuff that is wrong. It is really important because you could get really negative here and think, oh, this discipline of self-knowledge is about just sitting and and picking out all the, the horrible things that are inside us. It's not exclusively a negative thing. It's not exclusively looking for the wrong things that need changed. Go to 1 Samuel, please, chapter 16. Famous verse, but do you no harm to, to see it again. 1 Samuel 16 is the, the chapter where Samuel the prophet is visiting Jesse's house and meeting Jesse's sons because he is there to choose a new king for Israel. And in verse 6 of 1 Samuel 16... Samuel saw Eliab and thought, Surely the Lord's anointed stands here before the Lord. But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not consider his appearance or his height, for I have rejected him. The Lord does not look at the things man looks at. Man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. Now, we sometimes take that negatively. God looks at the heart, we think, in order to find the ugly stuff. We have this this wrong, negative view of God that he is, anytime he is searching us, anytime he is looking into our hearts, that he's there with an agenda to find dirt. And he's not. God says here that he looks at the heart. And just a couple of chapters earlier, we get a glimpse into what that means. When in chapter 13, verse 14, God speaks through the prophet and says that he has looked for a man after his own heart. So when God says to to Samuel in the house of Jesse, I'm looking at the heart, he's not looking for rubbish. He's looking for positive things. God is looking for a man after his own heart to be king. So when you engage with this process, you're not just looking for the negative stuff. We're also looking to know what are the positive things? What are the gifts that God has given me? What are my strengths? What are my passions? What are the things that make me come alive? What are the things that grieve me in the world around me and in the church? What are, what are the things that stir me? We've got to look for the positive stuff as well as the negative stuff. We've got to acknowledge, what are the gifts that God's given me? What am I good at? That's not arrogance. That is that is humility and accepting what God has made you to be. So this self-knowledge has a huge positive aspect to it. If I don't know what my gifts are and what my strengths are, what you know? What my passions are, then how will I know what my calling is in the kingdom of God? I can remember quite young in my journey of faith, finding myself very quickly being invited to be on a church committee. And I can still remember some of those meetings. I remember one in particular where we sat and discussed the heating system in the church building. And another one where we talked about uh, the organ. And I can remember just thinking, I shouldn't be here. This is not. I know nothing about heating systems and I know less about organs. But one of the things that happens to us as Christians is we end up being put into places that are not our place. We end up doing things in God's kingdom that he has not called us to do because we have failed to look into our hearts and acknowledge who we are and what gifts and strengths God has placed within us. David was tasked to kill a giant. Saul tried to put his armor on David. and David tried it on and said, no, I can't, I can't use this. I've never, I've never used it. I'm not used to it. And I can imagine God saying to David in that moment, I didn't call you to wear armor. I didn't give you the gift of wearing armor. Nothing wrong with armor, but I didn't give you the gift of wearing armor, David. I gave you the gift of using a sling. Use the gift that I've given you. Know and acknowledge the gift that I have given you and use it. Do not be pressurized, squeezed into what somebody else thinks you should do in the kingdom of God. Some of us, you know, I haven't given you the gift of preaching, but I've given you the gift of being able to fix somebody else's car in order to bless them. I can't fix anybody's car. I can barely wash the car. Know your gift. Some people are amazing at fixing stuff and you can bless people and show them the love of Jesus by fixing stuff. Don't let anyone tell you that's not your gift or that's not an important thing in the kingdom. It's a simple example, but what we so frequently do is we have this small number of things that we think, well, those are ministry, and those are the things people do in order to build the kingdom of God, preaching and leading worship and whatever, and we limit it, and then we try to be something that we're not, instead of knowing ourselves, acknowledging our gifts, and then using those gifts to bless others and show them the love of Jesus, Jesus wouldn't let people make him into what he was not called to be. They wanted to make him a king in John 6. He said, no, you're not going to force me into being the type of king that you want me to be. He asked the disciples in Matthew 16, who do men say that I am? And then he said, who do you say that I am? And the answers came back. Some people thought he was a prophet. Some people thought he was John the Baptist. Some people thought he was Elijah. Jesus was not moved by what other people thought he was or should be. He would not allow them to force him into a particular place. And he knew through his relationship with his father who he was. And he fulfilled that calling. And we need to be so careful because there's so many in the church who would just like to put us in a box. You do that and you can do that and you can do that and you're good at that. And all the while, so few who will invite us or will journey with us in the process of knowing ourselves and using our unique gifts to glorify God. God's goal in all of this is transformation, as I mentioned earlier, not condemnation. Romans 8, at the start of the chapter, we read that there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And then towards the end of the chapter, we read that God has called us and predestined us to become like Jesus. In all of this process, God is not trying to condemn, He's not looking for dirt. He wants to transform us into the image of his son. Another thing that is important in this but can be misunderstood or can lead to a wrong mindset is is this idea of accepting ourselves. Back to Mark 10 and the question Jesus asked the blind guy, what do you want me to do? Are you willing to speak out about who you are and what needs to change. Sigmund Freud said that the things about ourselves that we refuse to acknowledge are given increased power by our failure to accept them. I want you to think about that for a minute. The things about ourselves that we refuse to acknowledge are given increased power by our failure to accept them. So if there's something in my heart that God wants to transform and I deny that it's there, the very act of denying it and refusing to acknowledge it and accept it gives that thing more power and more influence in my life. It is so important that we know ourselves that we accept the realities and the truths about us so that God can transform us. But sometimes accepting ourselves can lead us into a rut of saying, well, that's just who I am. Even that has a positive and negative connotation. Who you are is a positive thing, who God has called you to be. Be the best you that you can be. In the strength that Christ gives but there's a negative side where we say that's just who I am I'll just accept who I am I can't change that is a really dangerous mindset to hold and one of the things that you need to have I need to have and that we need to give to one another is the hope that we can change Paul wrote in Romans 12 we've quoted it several times in this series so far about being transformed by the renewing of your mind. Paul wrote that 2,000 years ago, roughly, a long, long time before scientists discovered what's called neuroplasticity. It basically means that your brain is flexible, that it can change, that it can adapt, that new pathways and new behaviors can be developed over time and old pathways and old behaviors can be changed, can be left behind. You can change and I can change. Accepting and acknowledging the truth about ourselves does not mean we stay put. It means that we now bring these things before God for Him to transform them. We need to know that we can change, and we need to stop using the excuse that 's just who i am i 'm just a negative person i 'm just a pessimistic person i 'm just whatever i 'm no, we can change this whole series is about our power to change and this Need for self-knowledge is not an end in itself. It is a means, again, of putting up the seal. If I can acknowledge to myself and to to God what's actually in my heart, then the wind can blow and I can be changed. Speaking personally, I have wrestled with, with things lots of times. And over recent years, one of the things that I've started to really see in my own heart is I don't like confronting. And I would have always defended that by my defense mechanism would have kicked in and I would have said, well, I don't like confronting people because I don't want to create disunity and division in the body of Christ. And that's how I defended what God was putting his finger on in my heart about my failure sometimes to actually stand up and confront issues because I didn't want to create tension. And it's good to not want to create tension and it's good to long for unity and it's good to hate division, but it's not good to use that as a defense mechanism for failing to stand up and call something what it is and address it and deal with it. But for a long time, I defended that in my own heart. I failed to acknowledge it. And I don't want to quote Sigmund Freud too heavily again, but I do agree with them that my failure to acknowledge it actually gave it more power over me. It had to be brought out into the light and had to be dealt with and still is. Let me draw to a close for for this week by just reflecting for a moment on Adam and Eve. Adam and Eve in the garden wanted to be like God. And that in itself was not a problem. God made them in his image. God wanted them to be like God. God wanted them to show forth his life and his character. God wanted them to be fruitful and multiply and reproduce in his image and fill the earth with his image. The desire within them to be like God was not in itself a wrong desire, but a serpent came, and the serpent twisted the desire. And what Satan so frequently does is he comes and he offers us a distorted version of what God wants for us. He twists it. Not only a distorted version, but a distorted way of getting there. God had said to Adam and Eve, there's a tree of life, eat from it. And that, re- that represents their union with God and receiving life from God. And he said, there's a tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Don't eat from that. That's independence from me. That's when you start deciding what is right from wrong without a life connection with me. And the serpent comes along and says, you want to be like God. I know you want to be like God. You're made in his image. You want to be like him. Here's how you can be like him. Come and eat from the tree that he told you not to eat from. You won't die. You'll be like him. You'll get what you want. You'll get what God wants. He's so subtle. And whenever Adam and Eve ate from that tree, they became aware of their nakedness. They became ashamed and they made coverings for themselves out of leaves. And we've been doing that ever since. Whenever we see something that we are ashamed of, whenever we are exposed because of sin, we manufacture coverings. Sometimes nowadays we'll call them masks. We'll talk about wearing a mask. And the problem with wearing a mask is you can wear one for so long that even you yourself, you start to lose contact with who you really are. Am I the person who wears the mask, who presents myself so well? Or do I actually know what's in my own heart? We present the highlights reel of our lives to people. People don't get to watch the whole 90 minutes. They get to watch the best seven or eight minutes that we choose to present to them in our version of match of the day. We don't show them the whole thing. We just show them what we deem to be the best bits. We wear masks. Out there, lots of people starting to wear masks and buying masks and, and getting ready to just for the new norm of, of wearing masks in public places. Shouldn't be a problem for us folks because we've been wearing masks all our lives. A lot of us, most of us, me included. We love to present a false reality. We love to cover up what we are ashamed of. And the masks have got to come off. And next week is more so about how do we get the masks off? How do we invite the Holy Spirit, the truth of God's Word, the presence of God, other people, how do we get the masks off so that we know ourselves? God has already provided a covering for our shame in Jesus. We don't need to make our own covering. He has provided that. We don't need to hide in the bushes. God comes looking for us. And even now, even today, God comes looking for you and looking for me and says, where are you? Take off the mask, come out from the bushes and let me see who you really are. And let me show you who you really are in the safety of relationship with me. One last thing you might think, In uh, if you go to Mark 8, as we finish, this is the last scripture, only a minute left. In Mark chapter 8, uh, Jesus says something, and with me repeatedly using the term self this morning, you might be getting concerned, you know, self-knowledge, self-awareness. You might be thinking, oh, there's a lot of self here. In Mark chapter 8, verse 34, Jesus called the crowd to him along with his disciples and said, If anyone would come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. So David, why are you rattling on about self all morning when Jesus says you need to deny yourself? I think that it would be a misunderstanding of what Jesus said if we decided that we didn't need to know our own hearts because he said, deny yourself. He does not mean that we ignore who we are. He does not mean that we ignore and fail to acknowledge what's going on in our own hearts and our own lives. When he says deny yourself, he means deny selfishness. Stop causing the world to revolve around yourself. Deny your own ambitions, but don't deny who you are. Don't deny who you've been made to be. Don't deny the gifts God has given you. And don't deny the things in your heart that God needs to transform. It would be a huge error of judgment, I think, to take this verse and to say, well, I will ignore myself because Jesus said for me to deny myself. That's not what he meant. He goes on to say, whoever wants to save his life will lose it but whoever loses his life for me and the gospel will find it. It is in walking with him, as we'll see next week, it is in knowing him that we will actually truly find out who we are and come fully alive. So we're done. That's part one. Sorry that that's a sort of abrupt ending. We will pick it up again next week. I'm going to ask Stefan to come back in and pray and just bless us. As we go. Thank you. You should probably just needle or something.